Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. My grandmother on my father's side of the family was a larger-than-life character who belonged, I think, in some sort of Charles Dickens novel. Her name was spelled Bernice, but it was pronounced Bernice for some reason. And Bernice was a larger-than-life lady, about 275 pounds, six foot one, always donning a floral moo-moo, terribly diabetic and ill, yet always eating Snickers bars. Uh, She was (laughs) one of those women who would take the whole block of Velveeta cheese from out of the fridge and just gnaw on it all day long. She was on an oxygen machine, but yet was smoking at the same time. Just a a character's character. And uh, I remember that uh, we would have these very lengthy conversations about things that really mattered to me and really mattered to her because she would watch me after school almost every day. And she was sort of curious about and fascinated by my interest in the Christian religion. She never went to church and thought it was sort of fanciful that anybody would. Uh, And she said, even as a young man, I remember it. She said, Ethan, I'm really glad that this is important to you. But you have to understand it's not real to me. And that's where we left things. Uh, She needed it to be real to her. And she's not unique. All of us want to know, is there anything behind these beautiful conceptions or these ancient stories? Is there anything that we're really pressing into beyond just you know, more healthful psychology or something? Is there anything more going on? And, and can we attach to that reality uh, with greater awareness? And so she just is expressing what we all express in some way. And the prophet Jeremiah is addressing that urge uh, in a very deep way. You know, he's a 6th century BC prophet, and he is predicting, looking down the corridors of time and predicting a future in which God will relate to us using a new method, a new contraption, a new covenant. And I want to speak about this new covenant and the three qualities that it has. I'm going to walk through it, and I'll do so briefly. But in Jeremiah 31, we get the context. Now, in chapter 31, Jeremiah is having what we could call a rage fit. Most of 31 is a rage fit. Jeremiah is ripping open the earth down to the core, and magma is spilling all over the world. I mean, God is described as a furnace who is all-consuming, and and Jeremiah is almost gleefully dishing out the lava in in generous doses all over the world as God's uh, wrath would rightly consume anything that deforms the human condition and all of creation, and, uh, and he is tired, very weary and angry with disobedience and law-breaking, and you're the same way. I mean, how do you like it when the law is broken, or at least your own laws are broken? Uh, you don't like it. And let's say you have a child, and the child is just endlessly willful and petulant and difficult and does everything that you don't want them to do and lend lies about it, and you try these little schemes. Let's try bonding parenting, where I really try to get on your level and understand what your needs are and build your self-esteem, and you learn very quickly that doesn't work. 
work. Um, and then you try these, uh, these sort of uh, quid pro quo things. Well, it's like negotiating with a terrorist. Um, if you do that, I'm going to take your iPod and then your iPhone and then your i-whatever. And so you rob the child, but that doesn't work. And so you try some sort of cotton ball thing where there's a jar, and we put cotton balls in the jar whenever you're good. And then we take them out when you're bad, so you'll never get ice cream again, really, because you, <laughs> you're losing. You're just constantly losing. And that, that doesn't work. Um, and, uh, and so how do you feel when the law is being broken? You feel like Jeremiah did. Uh, you, you really do wish that sometimes the world would just burn down. But what's fascinating is there's this radicalized mood change within chapter 31 where he, he decides, in fact, that the best way forward is not to tear open the crust of the earth, but instead is to find healing for it. And so he has a mood shift and then offers these words that relate to the future. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, in that contextual passage, we have a deliberate and unavoidable contrast between past and future, between old covenant and new covenant. The old covenant that's being referred to there is very clear because of uh, its links to Egypt. It has to do with the law that was given to Moses, the law which structured and governed Israel's social uh, and religious life. And uh, there was a very famous incident in which that law was visibly and tangibly broken. And it has to do with the law's uh, original inception. You remember that the hand of God wrote with calligraphy along, uh, uh, on these souvenir plates that were given to Moses. And so Moses walks down the hill with the souvenir plates that have the etchings of the law on them. And then he sees what the people are doing on the ground. And what the people are doing on the ground is the exact opposite of everything that was written on the souvenir plates. And not as an act of sacrilege, but as an act of rage and sort of a divine-oriented rage. Moses takes the souvenir plates and shatters them on the desert floor, uh, because that's a visible and externalized picture of what the people were all doing within themselves and with their bodies, that they were d disregarding uh, the, the uh, norms that God has uh, placed into creation and in that revealed law. And that shattering or that brokenness has became emblematic. It was an emblematic moment that was, the, that was linguistically repeated in the rest of the Old Testament to describe Israel's relationship to that moral law, the Ten Commandments and all of the other commandments that extrapolated those ten. Israel's constant behavior pattern was to say no and to defy and to break. Not to tweak, not to twist, but to break uh, the, the great enduring moral wisdom of God. And this is the uh, unending lesson from the Old Testament, that no laws, no externalized threats, no consequences can curb the appetite for destruction that lies within us all. This is why Billy Graham once very wisely pointed out that there aren't enough prison bars in the world to change one human heart, not one. Uh, and so uh, what Jeremiah is seeing is that we need some new program that he himself has not yet experienced, some new program that will offer us something that the current program of the law and the demand for change cannot offer. And so he, he looks into the future and sees this new arrangement, this new method, this new covenant. And here's its first quality. We can call it burrowing. This is from verse 33. 
This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Now, uh, Jeremiah is realizing that all sorts of externalized codes, even if they are wise in what they prescribe, don't seem to burrow deep enough. And so it has to be an act of God where he takes the wisdom that was written on the souvenir plates of Moses and takes that wisdom and internalizes it, burrows down into the star chamber of your person. Now, the heart in the Hebrew Bible has to do with the source of your affections. And so that's what you're commanded in the Old Testament, right? To love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, right? It has to do with love. Well, the problem is we love the wrong things, therefore we choose the wrong things, therefore we do the wrong things. But what this prophecy is predicting is that there will come a time in which God will take the external truths that seem too conceptual, too lofty, too rigorous, and apply them in such a way to your core and star chamber that, that it becomes natural for you to function in a new way. And this is a very big a, a difference from the emphasis of Old Testament religion. Now, religion in general is very big on externals, very big on externals. Um, and, and you know this, of course, that, right? Various religions have various externals in, in their approach, right? Go and bathe in that river. Go and walk into that labyrinth. Uh, do that pilgrimage. Listen to that speaker. Go to that church. And if you're in the South, wear a seersucker suit in the summer when you go to church. Um, in Judaism, they had the same sort of externalization in their religion. Eat this and not that. Wear this and not that. Wrap leather boxes around your forehead and around your wrists that have little uh, containers for scripture so that people will know that you're a religious person. Wash this in this particular way. And they had lots of morals that had to do with the external life of a person, right? Don't kill her. It's not nice, you know? Um, don't commit adultery on him, right? Because that wouldn't be nice. Uh, but, but that would govern your external uh, behavior. Well, um, lots of demands in the Old Testament, about 513 of them that would govern how you acted with your community. Well, here comes the new covenant, and it says, look, that's not enough. That's not enough. It's not enough to have lists. It's not enough to have do's and don'ts. We need to take the great enduring wisdom of God and deepen it so that it becomes natural, instinctive, and second nature so that the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing. And that's part of the new covenant is to say that you will begin to love what is lovely and true and function in it and therefore flourish by it. So that's the first quality, burrowing down, the, the, the truth and the, the wisdom of God burrowing down. The second quality of the new covenant is what we could call awareness, awareness. This is what it says in verse 33, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one reach uh, teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I was speaking to a, a friend of mine who converted to Christianity from Judaism in the uh, late 70s, and she was talking about a, a time in which she was on a bus in New York City as a new Christian, just bought a Bible. Uh, a King James Bible where the, the words of Jesus are written in red and bought it from a dollar store, the rough equivalent in the 1970s. And, and she was on uh, the bus when the buses used to have those caned seats. The women never liked them because they would put runners in your uh, stockings. And, uh, and she was sitting there and there was a woman who sat across from her and said, uh, noticing the Bible, you know him, don't you? And uh, my friend thought this was very cool, like she was in a secret club or a conspiratorial group, and she said, yes, yes, I do. 
what did she realize? That in becoming a Christian, all the uh, sort of fanciful and conceptual ideas of God that she had batted around in her brain for decades had become real to her, that God was no longer a bit of trivia, something interesting to think about once in a while. But this God who has loved her into being and loves the rest of us endlessly became someone, not just something, a he, not an it, that was uh, surrounding her and caring for her and noticing her. Um, and that's what the new covenant promises, to create a growing awareness to the point where you don't even need to take the correspondence course, right? A man doesn't need to say to somebody else, know the Lord, because they all will, from the greatest, that is, from people that are regarded as very lofty, to the lowest, the people that we ignore on the street. Everybody will have a base level knowledge and an awareness of the heavens that are encroaching upon us. And uh, this becomes an Old Testament mantra within the prophets that there will come a time in which God will have his people and those people will have their God and there will be no divorces and splits and canyons between the parties, that there will be uh, a, a harmony and beauty and an Edenic bliss that is uh, celebrated and experienced between them. And uh, th that's why we believe that there's a difference in Christianity. There's a difference between just knowing about Jesus and being in Christ, it's different. Uh, the, the, Jesus is not just a man who did interesting things a long time ago, but the, the suffering Christ who was obliterated and in touch with horrific pain in 30 AD is the same Christ who's in touch with your horrific devastation and pain in 2020. It's the same Jesus, and you get to know that Jesus, and that's what the new covenant is predicting, that you will know God and he will know you. You'll have an awareness, and this is why Martin Luther once said, Jesus is more than a word to me. Jesus is my life and my breath. Right? So there's that. Uh, now, uh, uh, third point, third quality, amnesia. So we've talked about burrowing, awareness, and now amnesia. This is verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Now that's a beautiful idea that there can be a situation in which there is no divine recall of our felonies. And that's what that means. Uh, in other words, the cleansing that is predicted here, the cleansing that is affected by Jesus' death is so deep and so profound that, get this, it alters God's omniscience. I mean, that's quite a thing to say. Omniscience is this idea that God knows all, right? Knows your good days as well as your bad, knows your past as well as your future. Uh, and Jesus' death um, cancels God's memory of your darkness, right? So God not only forgives, but he forgets what he has forgiven. As odd as that is to express and communicate, that's the idea. Colossians 2 summarizes that thought in this way. He, cancels, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So your record is obliterated from divine memory, killed upon uh, the hardwood of the cross. Now, I think that's a remarkable thing because it's like, unlike every impulse I ever have when I have a grievance, right? Uh, we aren't like God in that way. We don't easily forget our offenses. And when we become mad enough at somebody that we claim to love, even though we've said, look, I forgive you, it's all in the past, it's you know, water under the bridge, we all make mistakes, fight terribly enough with that individual and you'll be like Indiana Jones, like an archaeologist, and you'll dig and dig and dig until you recover all of those ancient grievances and then throw them at the other person. 
right? Well, not you, but people that you know in your life. Um, and, uh, and, and this is often how it is. And by the way, if, it's, it's a double-edged sword because not only can that be used to abuse other people, our lack of forgiveness and our memory of grievances, we also can't seem to forget our own mistakes. And so this is why we uh, self-harm. It's why we talk ourselves down. It's why we have such abysmal self-esteem because we believe, unlike God, that we are almost entirely defined and governed by our missteps and mistakes in the past. And whereas we are so uh, beholden to clutch onto them, God has already let them go. He let them go at Calvary and remembers them no more. Uh, so I think it's uh, remarkable that God is not moody, not uh, captive to the moment, uh, like we often are. Uh, this is an apocryphal story, but one maybe worth repeating. There was a, a, a cardinal, uh, a Catholic cardinal, who uh, had a, a peasant woman in a local village within his diocese uh, claim to have visions of Jesus Christ. And he thought this was absolutely ridiculous, so he wanted to meet with the woman to put her in her place. Uh, and, uh, and said to the woman in a condescending and quizzical way, well, how about this? The next time that you have a little vision of Jesus Christ, ask him what grave sin I committed and confessed last week. And she said, will do. So she goes away for a few weeks, then comes back to the cardinal and says, uh, your eminence, I did speak to Jesus Christ, and I asked him what grave sin you committed and confessed. And he said, well, what did Jesus say? And the woman said, Jesus was very clear about your sin. He said to me, I don't remember anymore. I don't remember anymore. Divine amnesia. And what would that be like to relate to someone, the most precious one, uh, in such a way that nothing is held against you? All the things that you hold against yourself are not held against you by God. They've all fallen away into the Mariana Trench of God's forgetfulness. So, well, friends, that's the new covenant. That's the idea. The burrowing of the truth into the heart, the awareness of God that begins to grow, and the divine amnesia that woos us into love. And this is why Jeremiah died not a miserable but a hopeful man, because he believed in a new covenant of burrowing awareness and amnesia. And this was, of course, enacted in the Last Supper, where Jesus took a cup and said, this is the blood of my new covenant, which was given for you, right? It was the fulfillment began at that point and is still growing until that day in which the kingdom is here in its fullness and is finalized in our, uh, in our everlasting experience. Uh, and so that's the pledge, that God would move in closer, uh, that God would be real to us. And what I've discovered is the epiphany of this new covenant can occur to anybody, even, well, Burnus. <laughs> even Burnus. Uh, I remember uh, being uh, called to her deathbed at least on 18 occasions. Um, she had lots of deathbed experiences because she would always claim she was dying to get a little attention. Well, uh, my father called when I was, I think it was 18 or 19, and said, Ethan, get down to the, to the nursing home because your grandmother's dying. I said, well, been there, done that. And she, he said, no, 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 I think it's actually real this time. I said, oh, uh oh, I'll go. So I was there, and I was sitting next to her, and she was in her floral muumuu, uh, breathing very heavily, but unaware of my presence. And she did something that she had never done before. I swear to you, it happened. Uh, she... Uh, experienced, I guess, what psychologists would call a regression. She started praying like a child. 
uh, but praying about all sorts of things. And she was deeply thankful in her prayers, and she had never been a particularly thankful person, but she, she thanked God for her husband. She said, you know, Lord, I thank you for my husband, uh, Jack, who was a good man, but I didn't always treat him very well. And I, I thank you for my son, uh, and I thank you that he turned out okay, and I thank you that I have grandchildren, and I thank you that I have nice nurses, and I thank you that people have really taken care of me, even when I was a pain. And, uh, and then she got very sad, and her eyes were closed, and she was um, kind of squinting. And she said, and I also have to say that I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes, and I'm really sorry that I made all those mistakes, and I'm sorry that I wasn't the woman I should have been. I wasn't the mother I should have been. And I need to be forgiven for, like, everything. And then she kept squinting. And then at once she relaxed. And she said, wow, thank you. And then she became unconscious. And then she died. And that's not a preacher's story. Like, that actually happened. And I was there and took in that moment. What was she experiencing? Well, the new covenant breaking in. Now it's not just a conception or some neat idea to bandy about. It matters. She realized that whatever this God was, God cared for her in that weak moment. And Jesus came for people like that and for people like you. And so that's the benefit of the new covenant. The new covenant is not a Vesuvius. It doesn't threaten you. It's not here to scare you. Instead, it's warm and it's sacrificially hospitable because of the beautiful death of Jesus. It makes room for us, you know. God is a line that opens. Opens wide enough to embrace us all. Amen.